You can take a Bible out this morning and find the very last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. If you make your way to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, turn left, go back the other direction. We have come to week 12 of 12. This is the last week where we're going to talk about the minor prophets. Just to give you an idea of where we're headed next, uh, over the next several weeks leading up to Christmas and the end of the year, we're going to talk about the book of Isaiah. We're going to talk about several different prophecies pointing us to the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus, and we're going to see even the death of Jesus and how this old prophet points us forward and explains not only the event of Christmas, but the meaning of Christmas. And when we're done with Isaiah, we're going to jump into a new series. It's going to take us a long time to get through it. Uh, I'm talking months and months and months and months, the Gospel of John. And we're going to go slow, and we're going to work our way through the Gospel of John and think about what he teaches us about Jesus and his life and his ministry and his teaching and ultimately his death. But this morning we're in Malachi, the last of the minor prophets. I've told you over the last several months that in the Jewish faith tradition, these minor prophet books, the last 12 books of our Old Testament, are grouped together and they're known as the Book of the Twelve. Twelve short books, twelve short prophets. We call them minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, but just because their writing is shorter. Their books are shorter than the major prophets. And the last three in the group, the last three of the twelve, actually form, you could say, a a subgroup, uh, a group within the twelve. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are known as the post-exilic prophets. Post-exilic because they came and they preached and they wrote their books after the people had gone into exile and after the people had come back from the exile. And we talked about this last week. There were three waves of exiles who returned to Jerusalem. There was a group in 538, a group in 458, and a group in 444. And so one more week, I've done this 12 weeks, I'm going to put my famous timeline up here for all you uh, detail history-oriented people. This is the story of Israel, right, from beginning to end. The unified kingdom is the nation of Israel, all 12 tribes together under one monarchy. First it was Saul, then it was David, then it was Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom split in two. That's the divided kingdom. Israel was the northern tribes. Judah was down south. Israel from the get-go was idolatrous, and in 722, after sending prophets, after being patient with the people, after giving them warning after warning after warning, God sent the nation of Assyria. They conquered the northern kingdom and took those people into exile. The same thing happened to Judah in 586 when the Babylonians came. They conquered the city of Jerusalem, they flattened the temple, and they took the people into exile. And there they lived for decades. And then they started to come back. Zerubbabel led a group of exiles back to Jerusalem, and his mission was to rebuild the temple. And we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Zerubbabel and the people made a great start at rebuilding the temple, but they didn't finish rebuilding the temple. They got busy and distracted with other things. So God sent a couple of guys, Haggai and Zechariah, prophets. And their job, their ministry was to sort of give the, the people and Zerubbabel and the rest of them a kick in the backside to say, hey, Finish what God sent you to do. He sent you back here to rebuild this temple, and God's serious about you finishing that task. Ezra came back after that, 
Ezra brought a, uh, brought a group of exiles back with him, and his job was to teach the law. They had this nice new temple. They needed somebody to teach the law. What do we do with this temple? How do we serve the Lord? Nehemiah came back. Nehemiah's job was to rebuild the walls around the city. And after all of these prophets and all of these exiles have been brought back to the land, we finally come to the very last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet, Malachi. Most Bible scholars take Malachi and they put him around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. He's the last voice before you turn the page and you come to the New Testament. And after he spoke, after Malachi said what he had to say and wrote this message down, there was roughly 400 years of silence. God didn't send any more prophets There were no more oracles, there were were no more visions, there were no more prophecies about the future. There was just waiting for the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had promised, and as we'll see this morning, what Malachi had promised. If you wanted to summarize Malachi in one sentence, here's our best attempt. Malachi is a book about worship. It's a book about worship. When I say it's a book about worship... As Americans who live in the 21st century, many of us think, oh, so this is a book about what we do when we come into this room. This is the worship center. This is where the worship band plays. And we come in here and we have corporate worship. And you may wonder, is Malachi, was was he on the traditional side of worship or was he on the contemporary side of worship? Those terms are both out of out of uh, vogue anymore, and so now we call it modern, not contemporary, modern worship or classic worship. You don't want to be traditional, but you want to be classic. You say, well, which side of the debate was he on? Neither. Neither. He wasn't talking about some specific activity that you do in some specific place in one specific hour of the week. He wasn't talking about the time when we come together and we sing. He also wasn't talking just about the temple and all the things that happened at the temple. When Malachi talks about worship, and throughout this book it keeps coming up over and over and over again, he's drilling down and he's talking about your heart. What is the position of your heart before the Lord? Not just on Sunday mornings, on the Lord's Day, not just on the Sabbath, on on the day where you you may gather together in the synagogue or at the temple, but what is the condition of your heart when you come before the Lord day in and day out throughout your everyday normal life? Where is your heart in relation to God? That's what Malachi is talking about in this book. It's a book about worship. A few thoughts about Malachi the man, and we'll jump into the message. What do we know about Malachi? We know that his name means my messenger. He was a messenger for the Lord. And we'll get to the end of the book. He's also pointing the people forward to another messenger that God was going to send. He's quoted by Jesus, Luke, Mark, Paul. He's the last voice in the Old Testament. And he just picks up in the New Testament. And we keep hearing snippets from Malachi. He talked more about the present than he did the future. I probably could have said this just about every week we've looked at the minor prophets, but you need to understand this. We tend to think about the prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, and we think those are like holy Nostradamus guys, right? Not not pagan people, not like psychics or fortune tellers, but they're the guys who look into the future and talk about the future. And they did some of that, some of that. 
But mostly what the prophets did is not look into the future. They just looked around. And then they actually looked backwards into God's law. It wasn't so much about predicting what was going to come in the future. It was more about this is what the Word of God says, and you're not doing it or we're not doing it, and God has already told us what the consequence is going to be. When they look into the future, it's not that they're just pulling these crazy things out of thin air. It's that they're looking back into the Scripture and saying, this is what God promised to do if we went against his law and transgressed his commandments. And we're doing that, and it's going to happen. So they talked more about the present than the future. He was the last prophetic voice until John the Baptist. With Malachi, the old covenant comes to an end, and we're moving forward into the new covenant with John, who's pointing us to Jesus. What was his message? Sort of interesting. The very last thing that God had to say to his people before Jesus shows up, what was the last thing that he said to them? What was Malachi's message to God's people? Three thoughts. The first is this. Worship includes our human relationships. You're worshiping God includes the relationships you have with other people. And I'm not suggesting that you should worship other people. What I am saying is that your relationship with God is not just this isolated thing that doesn't have any impact on the way you relate to the outside world. Your relationship with God very much has an impact on the way that you relate to people on a horizontal level. Take your Bible and let's just read a few verses here. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Malachi says to the people, not just you with the finger pointing, but we. We are faithless to the covenant of our fathers. And we are faithless to one another. On a horizontal level, our relationships are not right. And you say, well, what did he have in mind? Specifically, what was he upset about? Well, verse 11, he talks about Judah going and marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Meaning, God's people had gone out and entered into marriages with people who worshipped false gods. God said, don't do that. Don't marry those people. And they went out and they did it anyways. If you keep reading in chapter 2, verse 14, you'll come to the idea that these people are divorcing left and right, and nobody thinks it's a problem. No one's concerned about it in the least. No one's worried about it. God had given them very specific instructions about marriage and very specific instructions through Moses about divorce, and they basically took all those instructions and set them aside and said, you know, we're not trying to be done with you, Lord. We're just going to kind of do it our way here. We're going to marry the people we want to marry, and when we don't want to be married to them anymore, we're going to do it our way. We're not going to listen to you. Jump down to Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. He talks about adulterers. He talks about those who oppress the hired worker. He talks about those who are oppressing the widow and the fatherless, those who are thrusting aside the sojourner. Those are all human relationships. They're horizontal relationships. And at the end of Malachi 3.5, he says, these people don't fear me. The relationship that they have with the Lord is pictured in how they relate to other people. 
And Malachi is saying, your worship is not just this thing you can isolate and then do whatever you want to do horizontally. But that's the lie the people had bought. It's a very old lie if you've read the Bible. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. When Cain takes his brother out in the field and slaughters him, and he comes before the Lord, and the Lord said, where's your brother, and what does Cain say? What does that have to do with anything? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to worry about him? I'm here before you. Isn't that enough? What does the horizontal level mean anything? You understand that you live in a culture, 2018, thousands of years after Cain, thousands of years after Malachi, that has bought into the exact same lie. Your spirituality and your relationship with God can be good and and you can set the terms in that and and you can be right with the Lord and on a horizontal level, you can do whatever you want to do. On a marriage level, you can marry whoever you want to marry. If you don't want to be married to them anymore, you don't have to be married to them anymore. If you don't want to get married at all and you just want to live together, then you can do that. I mean, the world says the exact same thing. You can have whatever doctrinal theological beliefs you want to have about God. Just don't pretend that that spills over into how you relate to other people. And Malachi is saying to the people of Judah, and he's saying to us, that's not true worship. True worship is not coming into this room and singing all the right songs and then going out and living in relationship with others however you want to live regardless of what God has said. True worship is coming into this room and singing all the right songs, do it in spirit and truth, but then when you leave, your relationships with other people are governed by and guided by what God has said in his word. Your worship involves human relationships. I thought about this during the week. It made me think of a class I took in seminary. It was a class called Cultural Anthropology. Everybody in the class got assigned a people group, and I got assigned the Nanette people of Siberia. They herd reindeer for a living. And some of you woke up this morning, and you felt like you were in Siberia, and you're looking around for the reindeer. It's cold, and it's cold in Siberia. We had to do a presentation on these people. You had to sort of pretend like you were the missionary going into this culture. How would you try to interact with them in sharing the gospel? And the one thing I remember about these people, even more than they heard reindeer, is this. In their language, the Nanette's language, there is no word for religion. No word for religion. Now, they believe things that we would term or describe as religious, They believe in deities and spirits and they have shamans and they have rituals and worship and all those sorts of things. But they don't have a word for religion because in their minds, your quote-unquote religion is just life. It's not this isolated thing that you can put in a box. And as Americans, that just seems weird to us. It seems so strange. Look, as Americans, we like to categorize and have different boxes. And so we have a religion box over here. This is my religion box. And then right here, this is my family box. Separate. And then right here, it's my work box. It's different from the other two. And then over here, I have my leisure box. And we sort of pretend like we can have all these different things separated out in our life, and they don't interact with each other. And Malachi is actually much closer to the Nanette's people. And what he's saying is, you don't have all these different boxes in your life. You just have one box. And the things that you believe about God 
have an impact on the way that you relate to other people. In marriages, at work, in your community, at school, in your family. Your relationship with God, your worship of God includes the way that you treat other people and the way that you listen to the Lord about how you ought to relate to other people. So that's the first thought about worship. Here's the second thought. Worship includes our abilities and our money. Our abilities and our money. This is actually one of the funnier parts of Malachi. It's really not funny, but it is kind of funny when you look back in hindsight. Look at Malachi chapter 1. Starting in verse 6. And as we read a few verses here, you just got to pay attention to the quotation marks and the punctuation. Because there's a, there's a conversation going on. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. Quote, a son honors his father. This is the Lord speaking. And a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master... Where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests, so now we know it's the Lord talking to the priests. O priests who despise my name. So the Lord says to the priests, you don't give me fear, you don't give me honor, you actually despise my name. And the priests say, but you say, how have we despised your name? What are you talking about? We're priests. We work in the temple. We sing the psalms. We offer the sacrifices. How have we despised your name? Verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's temple may be, excuse me, the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor? Says the Lord of hosts. I told you it's, it's kind of funny, but it's not really funny, but it's a little bit funny. I mean, they were supposed to bring the best they had, right? The youngest, the, the perfect animal, the perfect sacrifice, and these sacrifices were supposed to be perfect, not just because God was nitpicky, but because these sacrifices are picturing the ultimate sacrifice that would be made someday. Bring your best. And when the day comes, they look around and they say, well, which of the lambs are we going to take from the flock? How about that old three-legged lamb we got out there in the, in the pen? Let's take that one. How about that, that old goat that's 25 years old, laying sick over in the corner? Let's take that one. How about the, how about the sheep that keeps walking into everything because he can't see anything? Let's offer him as a sacrifice. And they actually show up at the temple where they're supposed to bring a perfect animal, a spotless animal, with these deformed, sick, dying, ugly sacrifices. And the Lord says, you're despising my name. You are not fearing me. You're giving me leftovers when what I asked for was the best of what you had. You're basically saying, what is the bare minimum that we have to do in order to please the Lord? He wants an animal? Well, give him that one. Let's just sort of get by with the bare minimum. It continues later in the book. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. 
Again, there's a conversation here. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Meaning, return from what? We're here in the city, in the, in the promised land, in Jerusalem, at the temple. We're doing all the right stuff. Why do you mean we need to, what do you mean we need to return? Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you in your tithes, in your contributions? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in the house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Oh, they were going to the temple and they were bringing their offering. And under the old covenant, they were supposed to bring a, a tithe, a, a 10% cut of what God had blessed them with. They got to keep 90, God asked for 10 They were going, and they were bringing something, but they weren't bringing all that God called them to bring. Maybe they were worried that they wouldn't have enough. Maybe they had a big Christmas planned, and they just didn't want to part with some of that money. I don't know what they had in mind. But they weren't giving him all that God called them to give. And God says to the people, it shocks them. They're they're just outraged that he would say something like this. He says, you're stealing from me. You're stealing from me. That stuff you have is not really yours, it's mine. And I'm letting you keep 90, and I'm asking you for 10 back, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to provide for you if you're faithful in that. But because you're not doing it, you're robbing me. Think of it. Man robbing God. We live in the new covenant, not the old covenant. So none, none of you are going to get in trouble if you cooked a, a blind animal and put it in your potluck dish this morning. That's okay. We'll eat it. Right? We're not bringing sacrifices to the temple. If you looked at the potatoes and you felt like they weren't the best and you went ahead and threw them in, that's okay. We're not bringing food offerings or animal offerings to the Lord. When you read through the New Testament, you don't find a single command that you're supposed to continue this tithe as an exact percentage. Here's what we are told in the New Testament as the body of Christ, as a church. God has gifted you with talents and abilities. And he's gifted you with those talents and abilities, not for your own good or your own glory, but for the good of this church and for the glory of Jesus. And if you sit on those talents and abilities and refuse to serve in your church family... Malachi would walk right into the room today and he would say, you are stealing from God. And you would say, are you kidding me? I have never cracked open the offering box when no one was looking. I would never do that. Christian's always looking. I've tried and he's always looking over my... You say, I've never stolen. And Malachi would say, you're stealing. Because God gave you something that wasn't just for you, it was for your church family. To simply come and to take up space in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning is not what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Are you using the gifts that God has given you? And money. All right, we can argue and debate about this tithe stuff in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, a percentage or the gross or the net. And look, just table all that stuff. The New Testament says you are to give joyfully. Joyfully. 
and you're to make a sacrifice in your giving. Let's just start right there. Be a joyful giver and a sacrificial giver. Are you doing that, yes or no? What Malachi wants us to understand is you can come in the right room on the right day with the right people and sing all the right songs, but if you are not giving back the, the talents and the gifts that God has given to you, if you are not faithful as a steward over the money that God has entrusted to you, you are actually robbing God. Your worship includes your talents, your abilities, your giftedness, and your money. One last thought. Worship includes our thoughts of God, the way that we think about God. came across a quote a while back. It's about President Eisenhower. And the quote about President Eisenhower said this, he was a very fervent believer in a very vague religion. That's a lot of Americans. Well, they believe. I believe in God. I believe there's a, a higher power. You start to drill down and get specific about what that means and the God that you believe in. What does he look like? What are his attributes? What are his characteristics? Everything gets really fuzzy. Very fervent in believing in God. Not all that certain about what we believe about God. I read a story about a Presbyterian pastor. His name was George Buttrick. He was a pastor in the New England area in the last century, in the 1900s. He was on a flight later in his life, and on this flight, he was flying back home. He had to preach. He was working on his sermon. And a guy comes on the plane and sits down next to him, and they strike up conversation. He says, so what are you, what are you working on? And Buttrick says, it's like the ultimate conversation killer if you're a pastor. He says, well, I'm a pastor, and I'm working on my sermon for Sunday. And the guy next to him sort of chuckles a little bit and says, ah, religion. I don't like to get all into the complexity of religion. The golden rule, love your neighbor, that's my religion. That's all I need. Buttrick said, okay. And they continued in conversation as the flight went on. And at some point, Buttrick asked the guy next to him, what do you do for a living, by the way? How do you earn a paycheck? And the guy said, ah, I'm a professor of astronomy. Look up into the sky and I study the stars and the angles and the positions and chart these different things and study the, the size of them. And he went on and on about all of the complexity of astronomy. And Buttrick sort of chuckled to himself and he said, huh, astronomy. You know, I, I don't really get into all the complexity of it. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's all the astronomy I need. It's preposterous to take the field of astronomy and boil it down to a children's song. And it's insulting to the one true God to be a very fervent believer in a God you don't know or understand at all. And Malachi in this book, from the beginning to the end, is saying very specific things about God. And he's saying to the people, look, you can be in the right place at the right time with the right folks. You can go through all, all the right religious motions. But the things that you think about God actually matter. They really are important. And they're really part of your worship. Take your Bible and look at Malachi chapter 1. Just a few things. Right out of the gate, he starts with theology. 
There's an introduction, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Verse 2, God says, I've loved you to his people. That's the start of the book. I love you. And he's going to point out their sin and their shortcomings and their rebellion and their stubbornness and their folly and all of it. But he starts off saying to the people, I love you. You are my people. I love you. Malachi wants us to know that God is a God of love. Look what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, they may build, but I'll tear it down. They will will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He's talking about the Edomites and he's saying, I don't love you. I'm angry with you. There's going to be a consequence and a punishment for you. And he's showing us these two sides of God. He is loving towards his people, but he's wrathful towards his enemies. And he doesn't want us to have an imbalanced picture of who God is. Is he all love and no, no anger? Is he all anger and no love? And Malachi, right out of the gate, says you've got to hold both of those things. He loves his people and he's angry at his enemies. Verse 5, your own eyes will see this and you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He is not some tribal deity. He is not bound by you being in the promised land or you being in exile or out of exile. He's great beyond the border of Israel. He's not just your God. He's the only true God. You need to know who he is. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. I thought about this verse more than any other verse as I studied Malachi this week. Malachi three sixteen Should be easy to remember. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and he heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name we should fear the Lord because he loves his people and because he's angry with his enemies and because his name is great beyond the borders of Israel the only response that we should come before him with is fear and these people did it they feared the Lord And the Lord paid attention to them, and he heard them. Part of our worship is thinking right thoughts about who God is. Thinking rightly about him. So that's the message of Malachi. What do we do with it? How do we apply it to our lives? I'll give you one thought, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. How do we apply this message? I want you to hear the hope and the warning of Malachi. There's hope in this book, and there's a warning. And I'd just like us to read the very last chapter. Last chapter of Malachi, last chapter of the Old Testament. It's short. It's only six verses. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But... But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Period. That's the end of the Old Testament. 
There's hope and there's a warning. The warning is, Malachi 4.1, all of the arrogant and all of the evildoers. You understand that's a lot of people in the biblical worldview. Those who are prideful and those who do evil. All of them will experience the judgment of the Lord. But, but, for the humble, for those who fear the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise and bring healing. There's a way out of this judgment. You understand, Malachi 4.1 includes me and you and all of us in the prideful and the evildoers. That's us. But, the prophet says, for those who fear my name, those who will confess their sin, those who will come to God for healing, the Son of Righteousness will rise on you. And the prophet says to the people, don't forget Moses. Don't forget what Moses told you, the Ten Commandments. Love God more than anything else and love your neighbor as yourself. You don't separate those two. Those two go together. And then he says, look for Elijah. Look for Elijah. I'm going to send you Elijah. And immediately when he says Elijah, these people think of the crazy guy with probably wacky hair and he's wearing camel skin and a leather belt and he lives in the desert. And about four centuries later, there was a guy preaching in the desert of Judea. And he was crazy. And he wore a garment of camel skin and he had a leather belt around his waist and he ate bugs for dinner. And people went out to him because they were just fascinated by him. And the New Testament says that his job was to turn the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers. He was the fulfillment of this promise to send Elijah. Jesus himself said, if you can receive it, John is the Elijah who was promised. And John, this second Elijah, he didn't come to save anybody, but he came to point people to the Savior. He said things like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not a deformed lamb, not a blind lamb, not a crippled lamb, not a dying lamb, but the perfect, spotless, righteous lamb of God who has come to take away your sins. He's the sacrifice. Look, when we take the Lord's Supper this morning, this is the last thought on your notes. We're looking back to the fulfillment of John's preaching and we're looking back to the fulfillment of Malachi's promise. John said, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that. There was a sacrifice made on our behalf. Malachi said, if you will fear the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing for you. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves and remembering ourselves and celebrating as a church family that that Son of Righteousness rose, that there's healing Not judgment, not this day like a burning oven that we deserve, but there's healing for those who will humble themselves before the Lord. And so this morning, what a great day to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to give thanks. In some church traditions, they call the Lord's Supper communion. In some church traditions, they call it the Eucharist. And the Eucharist literally means thanks, giving thanks. Not trying to feel rotten, for who we are, but giving thanks to God for what he's done for sinners like us. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us to be part of the Eucharist this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask you to let the elements pass by. 
as they go down the row, and we encourage you to spend a few moments thinking about your relationship with God and and what it would mean for you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow, and we're going to pray.